0: Hi folks, welcome to Fig Tree Ministries. Make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel by clicking that red subscribe button below and click that bell to make sure you get notified every time we upload a new video. Enjoy today's lesson. Okay, so the past few weeks... Well, we're still on Christmas. It's like the never-ending Christmas story. And this is actually where I've been wanting to take us. Because for a long time, I've been trying to conceptualize what it means if Jesus is the King and we're Christians, a little Christ, what does that mean? Paul says, imitate Jesus, become like Jesus, be renewed and transformed by the renewing of your mind. And we're supposed to somehow grow to become like Jesus. But what does that mean? Like, how can we conceptualize that? And this is my attempt to conceptualize that. So don't take it as any dogma or anything like that. It's simply, what does it mean that we're Christians is kind of the title of everything. And that Jesus is the king. So that's what we've been leading up to for four sessions now. So I I looked for something. This is a photo off of Wikipedia. The background, this is a fresco in a church on Malta, on the island of Malta. And, of course, it's depicting Jesus as the king. He's centered in that fresco on the throne. He has a crown. He has his Alpha and Omega, meaning he's eternal. He's the, the beginning and the end. You notice that God the Father is behind him. And then it's difficult to see, well, it depends on your screen, I imagine. Right behind God, at the head of God, is, looks like a pyramid, a golden pyramid, and representing who sits at the highest part of the hierarchy, and that's the king. So whoever's at the highest part of the hierarchy is the king, and that's what this whole picture represents, Jesus sitting on the throne. Of course, they've pulled in a lot of the imagery, like the river of life that flows from beneath the throne. So anyways, this is just our depiction of Jesus as the king. To do a quick review, a few weeks ago we started off the Christmas story looking at First, Bethlehem, the birth of Jesus, Bethlehem, and then we compared a birth in a very common household, just every day, the lowest level of society, you compare that to that palace fortress of Herod the Great that sits right outside of Bethlehem, and it says, look, Jesus' birth is for all humanity. It's not for only the wealthy or the powerful. That was the first step then we compared it to caesar augustus who at the time you know said his his birth was good news for the world it's like no nope, jesus is the king and he's for all humanity so that was the first two weeks then we took kind of a strange turn last week and we looked at a fellow by the name of meister eckhart 13th century a dominican friar who was also a mystic and his Interpretation of the Christmas story is that the soul, your soul is feminine, gives birth to the Christ child in us. So that his idea was there's a never ending birthing of the Son. And the Son is then birthed in each of us as a Christ child. Paul says, Christ lives in me. Well, then you have to think, well, what the heck does that mean? So that was his teaching that and then through the development once once the Christ is born in you so you could celebrate that on christmas once it's born in you now you have a path of maturity to grow and to be transformed to be like Christ to be Christ like so that was that was all last week and then of course i kept asking the question well then what does that mean if we're christian little christ Christ we'll see in a minute means king, so a little king, what does it mean that we're growing maturing on a spiritual growth process to become like the king all right so that's that's basically what's leading us up to today, and then today I want to show at least one element of what it means to be a Christian conceptually to become like the king ourselves so point number two on your sheet is there's a theme within the new testament that is about freedom and this is what we want to explore today is this idea of being free you could almost say we're in the world but not of the world you're in the world but you're free of the world so what does it mean to be free now i'm going to go i'm going to show you three quick passages they're on your handout And I put them there because I wanted to do this quickly, just to show you some elements of how we talk about freedom. So, the first one, everybody knows this one. And you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So, we have something going on here. Truth, if you can find truth, there's freedom in truth and we'll see that that's not just a religious statement about knowing Jesus so that you'll be free that's actually quite a practical thing in the world that if you can live by truth you're unbound it sets you free and it's pretty remarkable there's actually a brilliant psychologist if you know his name is Carl Rogers he had a proposal that truth in its in its very nature is curative so that you can be you can actually heal through truth. Well, God is God is truth. That's what so the moment you enter into a relationship with God and you have the exchange of truth on a on the ultimate spiritual level, you begin to heal. It's truth is curative and that's pretty it's pretty amazing to discover even outside of say biblical, the body heals with truth and that's and it sets you free. So The truth will set you free. That's one of them. Another one. This is 1 Corinthians 3.17. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So, if we can live in the Spirit, and this is something that we'll do over the next couple weeks, what does Paul mean by that, live by the Spirit? There's freedom. And that's, very powerful, because that's where we want to go. We want to be as free as possible on all levels of our humanity. The last one, again on your sheet, is from 1 Peter. He says, live as people who are free. If you go back and you read that entire passage there, 1 Peter 2.16, I'm only pulling about out the part on freedom. He goes on to say, and honor the emperor. So we have to remember the whole time freedom doesn't necessarily mean that you're your own governing body you know um you're you're not an anarchist at all Paul says honor the authority of the government Peter says honor the authority of the government Jesus honored the authority of the government there's nothing in there that says you're that you're supposed to go out and and be an anarchist but you live freely in the world today So those are at least three things that we see, three verses. There's there's more than that, that have this theme of freedom, becoming free. Next step, just deal with the word Christ. With the way we talk about Jesus, we often use Christ as like his last name, but it's not his last name, it's his title. So he's Jesus the Christ. And in Hebrew, the word we translate it into Messiah. And Messiah simply means the anointed one. It's generally a king. So, for instance, when David is, when God tells through the prophet Samuel that uh, David's going to be the king, Samuel anoints David. That is the imagery, is the Holy Spirit now coming down on David, and he's going to be the anointed one, the king. In Greek, It's Christos, and that's, of course, where we get Jesus the Christ, because as you translate Messiah and Greek, same thing, anointed one. So Jesus is the anointed one of God, and his anointing, John the Baptist, at his baptism, both God and John, or John is the prophet, are anointing Jesus as the baptism. So he's going to become, and here's the picture, the king, because he's the anointed one. So we have this picture where Christ is kind of shorthand for the king. So Jesus the king or Jesus our king, he is seated at the highest place of the hierarchy. You can get no higher. So then we have to ask a question, well, what do we mean by king? Because here's now we have to conceptualize that for our own lives. If we're to become like him, and what does how do we conceptualize that in a framework that allows us to focus on something as we move forward so when we look at conceptually what does the idea of king mean well in a society where does the king reside so the king represents within a society the freest location possible metaphorically he represents the one who's ultimately free now we would say, "Look, there are no you know in the West we have laws. The king is you're not you're not above the law is what we might say this the king is still subject to some authority because kings who don't have any authority, especially if they don't have God, can run amok, and we don't want that to happen. but the king sits at the position that's the freest, another word." that you can use for king, and I put this definition on your sheet, is sovereign. So, a sovereign is somebody who's free to rule themselves. Or, you could say, the full right and power of a governing body over itself, without any interference. So, you have the ability to rule over yourself. That's what a king is. We, then, Are going to start focus ourselves to say how do we become like that in the world today? That's part of our part of our goal. So that when we okay, so let me just reiterate: the king's at the top of the the hierarchy. He's the freest of the free. He's free to rule himself, a sovereign. And we are a kingdom of with Christ as we know he's above us but ultimately we want to become just like him so we want to become in a metaphorical sense like a king so we look at our name we're christians right we're we're little kings so we're called to be just like king jesus not in the in the salvation of the world sense but in the freedom sense we're called to live free now that's easier said than done as we'll look at today conceptually that's the king so we're called to be to live free that's what peter says live as though you were free okay how do we do that well there's some practical things to do in order to maintain your freedom so here we are as a christian now there's a something we have to deal with because this is critical to the understanding of freedom god gave us free will meaning at any given moment you have a choice to act he wants you to act in a certain direction or a path to take, and it's a narrow path, as Jesus says. It's not that you can go all over the place. Free will says, in any given moment, I have a choice. But in order to get freedom, in order to be at the point where you are ultimately free, well, that's different because those are a series of choices. So, freedom. The one who is ultimately free is the one who can exist by making choices that keep them free. I'll show you that in a minute. They're two separate things. That's the key. So God gives us free will, but freedom is attained as we walk in life through our own choices because God gives you choice, and we've got to then make the correct choice as as best we can. All right, now, last week I took a a strange diversion and talked about quantum something in quantum physics, and I'm going to do the same thing today, because this is kind of cool. Last week we talked about how the mystical world, there's science, is now proving some of these theories that the mystics have had all along. And the, the area of science that's proving this is in the quantum realm the smallest of the smallest of smallest particles that we know of, right? Maybe there's more out there that we still don't know about, but at least in the quantum world, they're finding out there's some very strange things, and I'm going to suggest that even within the world of quantum physics, there's freedom. So, for instance, again, this is this is like layman's, I, you know, my extremely limited knowledge of anything about physics. But everything that they talk about within quantum physics is that it's, you can only have—it's a world of probabilities. There's nothing that we can calculate for certain. You have all of these particles that we can see. We can only guess their probability, right? And what's so cool about this is that God, at the lowest, smallest level of creation, gave even those particles free will. The particle is going to go a certain direction, but we can't predict which, where it's going to land. It has free will. We can only find a range of probability. And that's pretty cool that God creates a, a universe that has free will and then says to us, now you have free will too. And that's one of the, the basic foundations of the Bible is that God gives us free will. And what's even cooler is in the quantum realm, the particles act differently when they're being observed, but so do we, right? If you know you're being observed, you act differently. It's, it's bizarre. It's like the same thing that's happening at the quantum realm is happening in our own lives. So I just want to show we can talk about this idea of freedom and free will, and it's backed up by science in some really strange and amazing ways. So, okay, that was just our little foray into science is proving our faith here. So let's go. Let's, now this is where we're going to get to the meat of it. Freedom. What does that mean? We have free will. But the problem is we exist in the physical realm and we exist across time. So freedom is not the same as free will. As here we are, we show up in the world We exist across time, which means we have, in order to maintain freedom or attain freedom, we have to act moment by moment in a manner that achieves freedom. It's something that you can attain to. So, for instance, at any given moment in time, here we are. We have all kinds of limitations. We'll talk about some of how those limitations affect us, but for instance we don't we don't know all things. the world's too complex. we don't know the exact path to take, and that's part of having God as a shepherd, right? We need a shepherd because of our limitations, meaning we don't know the exact path to take. so the biblical metaphor is that God is a shepherd, and you're a sheep, and I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but the sheep on the scale of animal intelligence, is towards the bottom. So that's what we're being compared to, is as we walk the paths of life, we need a shepherd because we don't know how to walk the path. That's a sheep. And then if we have the correct shepherd, we'll follow the shepherd along. And that's part of our limitations. We can't know everything. But then God gives us free will, right? So, again, biblical metaphor, in a flock you have sheep, And you have goats. The goats are always choosing to go whatever direction they want. The sheep follow the shepherd's voice. And that's what we want to be, is the sheep that follows the shepherd's voice. Okay, so in any given moment, you have free will. But the freest person is the one who can maintain freedom over or across time. Now, think about somebody who, I don't know if you described him as, say, sinless how would they be would they be able to maintain freedom across time and that's exactly what jesus does he maintains the ultimate freedom in his humanity that you possibly can and part of that is when we sin sin we'll talk about in a minute sin binds you up so freedom is something that is attained across time and that's important to remember so if we just look at our life any at any point in our life there's a past, that's something that just happened five minutes ago or yesterday or last week or whatever, and we have a future. So there, And we're aware, by the way, we're aware of our past and we're aware of our future. And then we are bound by all kinds of limitations in the moment. So walking the path becomes very difficult, actually, in order to do it perfectly. Most of us can't do that perfectly. Now, what happens then? So let's take a look at what happens with the past and the future, because this is where we really struggle with. So let's just say that you're existing in the moment today. And as we act, there are going to be some baggage that shows up. So for instance, in the past, right? So if you did something in the past that was either violated God's law or violated a human law, or violated just the general rules of life, you'll experience negative emotions. Guilt, shame, and regret are the most powerful, it seems. Those are always about the past, right? You can't regret the future unless your behavior is so predictable that you know you're going to regret that you'll do something in the future. But guilt, shame, and regret, it's all about the past. So as you act in the world, And if you misbehave, you'll eventually go, I wish I wouldn't have done that. The future is all unknown, so we have anxiety. We experience tremendous anxiety when we think about the future and don't know. And then we also have fear. It's fear of the unknown. What's coming? What's going to happen? Am I going to be able to withstand that? And then God just says, look, I'm giving you right now. I'm giving you the moment by moment by moment, and I'm your shepherd, so follow me. And oh, by the way, I'm going to give you a list of guidelines. For instance, don't lie. So that's Leviticus 19.11. Very practical commandment. Do not lie. Because what happens the moment you lie? Well, you've got all kinds of problems. Obviously, a lie is the opposite of truth, and truth sets you free. So the moment you lie, well, you feel guilty that you lied. Now, maybe you're a sociopath and you don't, but there's shame involved. Lies affect human beings, period. They're corrosive. There's regret. I wish I wouldn't have lied. Why? Because I can't remember. I have to walk into the future remembering all the lies that I've told. So I've got anxiety. I I live a diminished existence simply because I violated truth. And this happens no matter what. Nobody gets away with anything. If you live a life with a whole bunch of little lies, you pick apart your whole life. You become a diminished human being. Well, that's the opposite of freedom, right? These things bind you up. So this is the world we exist in, right? Let's say we did another one. Don't steal. So what does stealing do? Well, same thing, right? You feel guilty that you did it. You're ashamed that you're the type of person that would have stolen. You regret it. Why? Well, because... You might get caught, and then you're worried about what's going to happen in the future, and you're afraid of—so you can see what happens. The moment there's something that's the opposite of what God wants you to do, it binds you up. It immediately binds you up, and that's what we call it, sin, but it's the thing that binds you up. All right, why? Because we exist across time. So we have to live in a way that does this, that we can live across time attaining— the highest level of freedom. Now, that's difficult to do. Again, because we can't see everything. We can't know all things at the same time. So, what we're going to talk about over the next, probably in two weeks from now, is the Bible compares wisdom versus folly. Particularly Proverbs. Any of the wisdom books, there's wisdom versus folly. So, wisdom will help you attain freedom. Folly, you fall into all of, the, all of the traps. So, there's a saying, wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. Why? Well, because it's the recognition that the reality of God, the moment you recognize the reality of God, you begin to consider the future and your behavior. And you recognize, oh, wait a minute, if I lie in the moment, then it's going to create a whole bunch of problems down the road. So, best thing to do, don't lie. And you can do that one of the, it's a great exercise to look at all those commandments in the Old Testament. Now, you can't always get them right. You know, don't cut the corners of your hair. I'm not sure how that one, but I imagine there's something that God wants you to recognize a, a a nugget of wisdom that somehow says you have to maybe separate yourself, right? That's I think that might be many of the commandments, but there's a consideration of your the concept, so when they when the Bible talks about someone who's wise, it's somebody who's able to consider the future. Why? because then they can attain freedom in the in their while they're still in their humanity a f- folly is the exact opposite. A fool says there is no God. well, what does that mean? Well, it's no recognition of reality, so you you assume I can lie, and as long as do, human beings don't catch me then I am okay but that's not true because God's reality is such that if you try to bend God's reality he will come back and straighten you out so there's the fool says there is no god there's no consideration of con- of your consequences or your actions towards the future and so this is what we want to avoid so if you live by wisdom well again that's a difficult thing to do because we need help we can't see all of this Okay. I want to show you though what's really this is what I've been really trying to sort out in my mind is freedom happens on multiple levels. Freedom happens on multiple levels and I think you'll see what I mean when we as as we walk through this. So you you exist across time. We've already established that. And so your behavior determines. Now, the world is complex, and those commandments that are in the Old Testament, well, they were given 3,000 years ago. So, the Bible doesn't tell us every bit of information, right? The Bible doesn't say, here's how much you should spend on a house. Or here's how much you should spend on a car. Or here's, you know, the Bible doesn't give you all that. But there are wisdom things to consider when you're when you're making decisions even though they're not fully in the text. But your behavior is something that it can either help you maintain freedom or take away your freedoms. And so we want to be wise about our behavior in the moment. And the commandments are supposed to help us do that. Another level of analysis is your relationship with God. And of course, when we violate the relationship with God, we need a mechanism to come back into that. And God provides that. We'll talk about that in a minute. And then the, the most difficult one, we'll talk about this, is relationship with others. Because, well, let's just say human beings are really good at disappointing one another. So I think these are some pretty good levels of analysis to talk about how can we maintain our freedom even while we're still in the world. So we've mentioned this one, behavior. Behavior, if you steal, it robs you of your freedom. Not just because you might go to jail, but because you have all kinds of negative emotion, guilt, shame, regret, and anxiety that are going to start to plague you, you know? And when people talk about having these negative emotions, it's always a weight, right? It's like a spiritual weight that presses your spirit down. And God doesn't want that. He He wants to lift it off, right? That's the forgiveness is a lifting so that your spirit can be free. Commandments or behavior. And what's interesting about behavior is you want to choose behavior that affects us not only at an individual level, say it's good for us at an individual level, but say it's good for our family, or it's good for the community, or it's good for society. And what you find is that if it's good for you as an individual, then it's probably good across the board. So if our actions are in line with truth and goodness, they'll be good for us, our family, our community and society. So, it works at oh, the, on the horizontal level of analysis, too. So, that's pretty powerful. We have these commandments. Now, let me show you one thing, though, that this will inevitably happen with human beings. So, suppose that you're walking in the world, you're properly oriented, meaning you're oriented, you've placed Jesus as your king, you're looking up It's the metaphorical view that you take in life. You look up to the king, and that's what you now are going to become or you're working towards, right? And God says, now here's some commandments that you have to obey along the way. Those commandments are there to help you. So as you start your path towards the commandments, the commandments are supposed to be to direct you towards this conceptualization of becoming the king. But that doesn't always happen. So sometimes in our humanity, we make the commandments or the rules or whatever we're following the end in itself. So what happens when we make the commandments the end of everything? Well, now you get much of the discussion between Jesus and the Pharisees, right? Was Sabbath made for man or man for the Sabbath? Is the commandment to keep the Sabbath the end all? Is that the thing? And Jesus says, no, that's not the end of it. It's just one step along the way that helps you to grow, to become like the image that God created you. And the moment we reduce all of this, and I'm sure you've you've all experienced this even in churches today, where the rules of the church become more important, and everybody starts little judging you know this happens in a lot of the holiness denominations you know everyone's holier than thou and they start looking down on everyone else so there's always a, a we have to keep the commandments in a proper perspective they're there to help propel us on our spiritual growth path but they don't become the end in and of themselves that's that's the danger so that's commandments commandments behavior those matter what about our relationship with god Right? How do we maintain freedom in our relationship with God? Because certainly we're going to err, we're going to sin. But God says, look, I'm going to provide you mechanisms. I'm going to provide you mechanisms to maintain your relationship with me. One, God loves to forgive. Now, the one thing you have to do is he doesn't forgive you. As a matter of course, it's a relationship. So you have to go to God and you have to say, I have to tell the truth. I have to confess. God, this is what I did. And I'm going to turn, I'm going to repent, I'm going to stop that behavior. And then the Old Testament, you need an atoning sacrifice. Well, in the New Testament, we have an atoning sacrifice. It's Jesus. So if God, God says, look, if you, if you confess your sins and you repent and you accept the atoning sacrifice, I will forgive you. I'll free you up from and restore our relationship. And that's A powerful, amazing thing about God is he wants you to be free in that relationship. So, he provides the mechanisms to be free. All right, last one, and this is the most difficult. How do you remain free in a sea of people who are going to inevitably disappoint you, break their promises, betray you? In some way, shape, or form. So, how do we maintain freedom in relationship to others? So, if we imagine that this is us, that's you, you're the center of the universe, and you're surrounded by this sea of people, right? And inevitably, they're going to do something. Maybe it's, you know, a man, a boss at work does something, creates an upset, a neighbor. Does something creates an upset? Person cuts you off on the way to whatever. Maybe they they vote different than you, and it creates an upset. And so these what what happens is in our spiritual aspect, you have these upsets that are established between people. It's when you have an unmet expectation, and these become they bind you up. And it's very, they're very toxic because you people who don't let go of these upsets become angry and bitter and resentful. That will start to leak out against their fellow man. And that's not what we want. That's what we, we don't want that to happen. How do we live where people are inevitably going to upset us? Well, the mechanism that God gave us and that Jesus preaches is forgiveness so you have to be able to stand in the midst of people who are doing exactly what you don't want them to do and you have to choose and that's very important to recognize you have to choose to forgive it's counterintuitive i want to hold on to my anger i want to be upset with this person i feel like i have power over them it's like no nope, that's the that's inauthentic power jesus says no you forgive them forgiveness is a releasing because we want to live as free as possible. Someone who's angry at the world is not free at all. They're burdened by all their anger. So as you forgive, what happens to all the upsets? They start to diminish. I choose to forgive you because you stole my idea at work. I choose to forgive you because you didn't promote me unfairly. I choose to forgive you because you voted different than me. Something like that. These start to diminish, and what you get is you live in the world but you're not attached to the world. And think this is the example that Jesus gives us at the end of his life. Everybody's betraying him. And how does he react? He forgives. And he stands there silently in peace. None of us would be able to do that. This is the hardest thing to do, and we're always given lots of opportunities to practice forgiving. It's counterintuitive, but it's the thing that will lead you down the path to the most freedom. So if we look at this, we go back to what we have to be able to behave correctly. We have to live freedom with our behavior. We we have freedom with our relationship with God. We have to constantly be in relationship. That's nurturing our relationship with God. And then we have to find the mechanisms that help us live free in relationship to others. And the most powerful one is forgiveness, because other people are going to upset us. So how do we become free that's what jesus is trying to show us in our humanity so that when we do this we then join him in this picture jesus is on the throne and i'll show you a verse in a second he wants you to join him on the throne it's very powerful to think how our walk impacts what we are here's the other thing that's so cool the birth of jesus is it representative for all humanity. So what it tells us is everybody has the capability of doing this. You recognize the reality of God. You set Jesus as your king. And when you do that, you begin to transform to be like him. And it's available to all humanity. And if all humanity would choose Jesus as their king, the reality of the world would begin to change. And it's very powerful. Dallas Willard, who's uh, taught a lot about, if if you know Dallas Willard, he taught a lot about spiritual formation and spiritual transformation, and one of the things he says is, you know, if you become free, if you transform to be like Jesus, the world does not like it. You make people uncomfortable because you're not going along with what they want you to go along with. And it makes people very uncomfortable. You'll stand out like a sore thumb. And, you know, it happens in all organizations. If you get a pathological organization and someone walks in who's very healthy in truth, they'll stand out. And it's, uh... anyways, Dallas Willard, I can't remember the name of the book, but I think this is conceptually what Jesus wants us to do on all levels of analysis to become free. The hardest one, again, is the freedom amongst people. It's, that's why I think the message of Jesus and forgiveness is, is so powerful. Now, let me start finishing up here. There's a paradox in all of this. So, the, there's a paradox. You gain life by give, giving up life. To be free, you have to become a slave or a servant. In Hebrew, it's the same word, he, slave and servant. So when it says that Moses, they left slavery, one type of slavery, to become slaves of God. But becoming a slave of God produces freedom. And it's that, that's why the world looks at, why would you follow God and all of these horrible rules? And it's so constraining. And you're like, no, no, no. When you follow the rules, it, gains, it gives you freedom. It's the opposite of what the world, the world's rules bind you up and you get you become suffocated in them. So there's a paradox, and of course the paradox, the world doesn't know what to do with the paradox. They don't like that. And then at the very end of your sheet, I put this verse from Romans 6.22. It says, Paul's writing, and he's, he says, but now that you have been set free from sin, right? So you've been set free and have become slaves of God. So it's like you went from, you traded the being a slave to sin to being a slave to God. But when you do, you gain freedom, and you gain long-lasting. So, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. Paul gets it, and it's, you find this theme across the New Testament, We don't always talk about it in a way that we can conceptualize for our own life why it's so important to seek to be free in our humanity. Now, I'll show you one last verse. I did not put this on your sheet. I apologize, but we did this one, I'd say, about six months ago. In the book of Revelation, John is writing to to the people at Laodicea. And he starts his letter, so you'll have to go back and read this later. Revelation 13, 14. To the people in Laodicea, these are the words of the Amen. Now, the Amen, Amen is a, the, that word comes from Emmet, which is truth. So these are the words of the one who is truth, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Well, who's the ruler of God's creation? That's Jesus, right? So it starts out by talking about. Truth is the ruler of God's creation. Then he finishes by saying, to the one who's victorious, this is verse 21, that's us, to the ones who's victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. So what does he want you to do? He wants you to become a king on his throne with him. Join him. Just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. So there's a, it's a replication of becoming like the Christ. And what does that look like? It's over time. The freest person, the one who attains freedom, is the one who can maintain it over time. As if you, as if you became the king. That's, what does it mean to be a little king? We're becoming just like the king. And then, last slide. This is from, it's just a quote from Galatians. For freedom, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. I went through that quickly. Hopefully, I beat on enough the idea of freedom, of how do we attain it. And it's a multi-level. It includes many aspects of our walk with Jesus. But it's the thing that becomes the most powerful. You become a powerful force for the kingdom of God when you can attain that level of freedom. And it's just like Jesus in his walk. He was very powerful. And made people uncomfortable in his walk. And he wants us to do the same thing. Okay, so that's becoming a king. So let me stop the share. Everyone's going to pop back up here. Next week, I'm going to show you a mystical idea of the king. It comes from Jewish mysticism. It'll blow your mind. And Paul is picking up on it. And part of Paul's Christology, the way that he views Jesus is something that today, if you go looking for it, you'll, let, you'll wind up in Jewish mysticism. That's where it's explained the most. And so it's really, it's a really cool image of the king. Anyways, we'll do that next week. It's so cool what Paul is picking up on and where they get this idea from. Thanks for joining us under the fig tree for today's lesson. If you like this video, be sure to hit the like button below. And make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit that bell to be notified every time I upload a new lesson. You can also check out more teachings here at our YouTube channel or at figtreeteaching.com and enjoy learning about the sweetness of God's Word.